0: Welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hello,
1: Guthrie.
0: Hello. And we're, we also have uh, two wonderful guests with us today. We have
1: two guests. Guthrie, I think this is the first time we've ever had two guests at a time, isn't That's it? That's
0: correct.
1: Yep. Okay. So we have, uh, I'll, I'll introduce, we have Andy Wellfleet. Did I pronounce that right, Andy? You did. Yay. Hey. Um, and we have Michael Metz. Hello. Hi, Michael.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah so we got exciting. we have to
1: have them both talk so that we can recognize who's talking as we go along. <laughs> so let's do that again. Andy, let's hear your voice.
3: This is my voice. If you want me to, I can put on an accent. Just a <laughs> no, super fake accent.
1: And Michael, your voice again.
2: Hey, this is Michael.
1: All right. They do sound different. Uh, so Andy and Michael, uh, have written a book that I think just recently came out. Is that correct?
3: Uh, it officially comes out on the 14th, at least the, the print edition. So so I
1: got to read the, uh, the, uh, early advance thing, which is cool. And it's called writing is designing. And, um, it's a really interesting book, uh, I, I got to tell you, I read a lot of books, on, or so, or I try reading a lot of books. I don't always get through them because they're not always so interesting. But yeah. I really liked your book, so we're definitely going to have to talk about the book uh, as we go on. So um, this is the first time we've ever talked, except for the two minutes before we started recording. <laughs> so I don't know you guys. Um, what, where, where are you located?
3: Um. Hi, this is Andy. I'm in San Francisco. Okay. Michael, and, where? Are you? Yeah, I'm located just
2: outside
0: Chicago.
1: Oh, you are. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Guthrie's
0: two two time zones Chicago. apart. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm in Chicago. Oh, okay. Neat. If you listen closely, you'll be able to hear the rattling of a L train oh, as it nice. sh- as it shakes my building. Which line? <laughs> uh, it's the red, brown, purple.
2: Oh, nice. All three of trains.
0: You <laughs> the quad track.
3: Well, if you, if you listen closely to this, you can hear the uh, rattling of the earthquakes as it, um, <laughs> you know, San Francisco into the ocean. So. <laughs> Do
1: you have one going on?
3: Well, luckily, not right now, but you never okay.
1: know. <laughs> All, right. All right. So tell, you know what I'd like, I, I, I have some questions about some stuff in the book. So I definitely want to talk about that. But before we get into that, I guess tell tell me I mean the book is 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 obviously all about writing but it's also then about the intersection between you know copy and words and writing and what I think of as you know user experience design and so I'm a little curious about your backgrounds are you you know like would you if you had to Put yourself into a box would you say oh yeah i am a i'm a ux person that is you know interested in the impact of the copy and the content or would you say i'm definitely you know a content writer person who became interested in ux like what what's your background on in both of those areas
2: well i think our stories are both different but, um, you know, this is Michael, and my, my journey, uh, at least my career journey, was a bit all over the place. Um, I was always, um, even after college, in college I studied visual storytelling. I, my goal was to be a photojournalist. But when I graduated, there weren't a lot of photojournalism jobs available. The market was actually rapidly shrinking, a lot of newspapers closing. So my first um, sort of uh, job in my field um, after I you know, got rejected by places like Dunkin' Donuts and um, <laughs> Caribou Coffee uh, was at a nonprofit uh, in um, just outside the Indianapolis area. And I worked remotely with that team and um, they wanted initially someone to help them create a lot of content for their website. So they knew I had writing skills, they knew I had photography skills, and they wanted someone to help them c- create a lot of new content. And once I started working with them, I realized that their the people in their audience um, didn't need more content; they needed the content that was there to be better and more effective. And so, I just started reading UX books and content strategy books. The first book I read was "Content Strategy for the Web" by Christina Halverson. And I was
1: just—I was I had just pulled that off of my bookshelf last night. <laughs> I was looking at it again, and because that's a—that's been around for a while.
2: Yeah, it has, and it was absolutely transformative and led me in the right direction and so i just applied a lot of what i was learning and what i was reading and it was a nonprofit, so they couldn't really give me money or anything but they could give me a title um, and they could give me the opportunity to practice what i was learning and so that was great Um, and i just started uh, sort of being a ux team of one um, in that organization and then i wanted to focus on ux i I knew that i really liked it and so I, i went Um, and got a job at a software company. And so I think I've always been a, a UX person, but because my focus has been on writing, sometimes I felt like the UX world didn't want that as part of what they were looking for. Like a lot of the jobs in Chicago were specifically looking for someone to make wireframes or someone to make prototypes, right? They were seeing it as inherently visual. And I was seeing that words were so important for a good experience. So I've had a lot of different titles, UX designer, UX writer, content strategist. uh, But I've always felt like a UX person who um, uses words and and language primarily.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, mine has taken kind of a similar path, but we, I think we approach it a little bit differently. I, um, also went to school for journalism and I really, really, really wanted to be a reporter and yeah, um, around that same time I, after I graduated, there was just no, no journalism jobs. Um, and I, I also went to a nonprofit, um, but mine was a, like a small arts nonprofit where I did a lot of marketing. And that was around 2007, 2008 when um, social media was starting to become a tool that you can use for marketing. Um, you know, Twitter started becoming a thing, Facebook pages were a thing. and I started really digging into, into that, like social media marketing for nonprofits. I really enjoyed it. Um, I kind of of after after my stint at that nonprofit, I went to go work at an agency, um, kind of intending to be like a social media strategist, uh, teaching the web development, uh, like the web clients that we would have to like how to use social media to further their cause. And I really realized i liked the kind of strategy and communications portion of it much more than I liked the kind of marketing and promotion aspect of it. And I really kind of dug in there and First content strategy book I read was *The Elements of Content Strategy* by Aaron Cassane. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really great, a book apart book, um, and it's now free. It's available for free now.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, I
3: didn't know that, they yeah. open sourced it. Um, so that's a really fantastic book. Quickly after I read Christina's book, um, and my boss and I were both like, "I think we can," you know, "I think we can sell this." Um, so I became kind of a UX content strategist involved in. Um, in web development. So I did a lot of, like, information architecture and content modeling and kind of making sure we were building the back end, like, the back end of the CMSs in a way that was logical and made sense for the clients to use. Um, Really enjoyed doing that. That was in... uh, Northeastern Indiana, where I grew up. Um, mm. And after a few years of that, I really wanted to try to like find a bigger market. Uh, I met a guy named Jonathan Coleman, who at the time was a content strategist at Facebook. And he suggested I come work there. So I worked at Facebook for a few years, and I have since left and now have a small team of UX content strategists and UX writers at, uh, at Adobe in our pro- big product design team. So, yeah. So
1: how did you guys... Uh, meet each other.
3: Our eyes locked across the room. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the violin kind of, started yeah. playing. Yeah. yeah, it
2: was kind of like that. Um, Andy <laughs> was in uh, a workshop that I was teaching with um, Scott Kuby at Midwest UX, and this was the day before he was flying out to San Francisco to interview at Facebook. Um, so this was at um, it was in Indianapolis, I believe. Uh, that's it where was. it was. Yep. Yeah, and so we you know, we met then, chatted a little bit about how we were interested in the product side of writing and content strategy. Uh, and um, then we just sort of kept running into each other at, at conferences and um, on the web and started talking about how we needed to um, you know, talk more about what was happening in this space with products in particular and um, how content strategy is different when you apply it to software. Um versus a website mm. so uh we actually developed a workshop together that we've been teaching uh tisha taught it a few times at um conferences like confab and uh the book kind of grew out of that um that activity it's Doing funny a workshop
1: I, together
3: i feel like a lot of books kind of lead to workshops uh you know like you have somebody who write a book writes a book turns into a workshop we kind of went the opposite direction which was
1: you did the workshop which and was then fun. wrote fun book. yeah don't you feel like, uh, it's, you know, there's so many things, so, I, so I've been in the field of UX for um, a long time, and there's so many different elements of the field of user experience that seem to go through these pendulum swings, you know, where... People realize, oh, that's really important, and then they forget it's important, and then they remember that it's important. Yeah, you know, not individual <laughs> people, but like the industry in general. And it seems to me that this whole idea of content and copy and words and and what you say and how much you say and how you say it, it it has kind of gone through those different cycles. I mean, um, I remember a long time ago when there were a lot you know there were several consultants making quite good money uh helping people design and write online help systems which i Mm. I, guthrie do you do you even know what that means
0: we say say it again
1: if i said to you yes i i worked with uh uh, American Express in, in as a consultant helping them write their online help systems
0: oh yeah I know what that means you do? yeah you... I'd be wrong oh, but... what, would you, what do you think it means? I'd like to <laughs> take a guess so for those of you who may or may not know I'm 30 so I am young but I'm also old um, you know I'm not 17 um, yeah I have been on an intranet. I know I know what an intranet is. So okay. when you say online help systems. Yeah.
3: Just say, okay, boomer.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. an online help system, I am yeah. going to imagine,
3: Yeah,
0: is you're a deploy at a company and you have a problem and you need to fix it. And so there is a repository in your intranet that allows you to find information and help yourself or others.
1: So not accurate. Ah,
0: like, I knew I'd be wrong, eh, but it sounds good. You got good. that one wrong. It you sounds good. You just got
1: that one wrong. So, um, <laughs> and I know uh, there are some people out there listening who might know what this So an online help system was you had software that you were using um, for whatever. And you were using this software and it was uh, very possible that it, was not particularly usable. And um, you couldn't figure out what you were supposed to do on this screen and what what code you were supposed to enter or what was going on. And so you would originally, the software would come with a printed physical manual uh, about the size of your new book, Guthrie, because oh, Guthrie just came out with a book called I Love You Now, Read This Book. It's about... Human decision making and behavioral economics. And it is a huge book. It's like, how many pages are in that thing? It's
0: under 500 pages.
1: Under 500, but just barely. So you used to get your software, used to arrive with a big manual. And so if you had a problem with your software, you could look up what to do in the book. And then things got so advanced that instead of a manual, you could click a help button uh, on your screen.
0: I remember. The, and the the, the help, help the manual, CD yeah, that came with products, and you put the little yeah. CD in, and it had a, an enormous well. PDF with all okay. the yeah. It's just a manual.
1: Yeah, this was more. Continue. You could do contextual help. Anyway, let we can move on from that. I'm just saying. Why I, did I um, bring I, that <laughs> up? Oh, can I can I'm I uh, play my failhorn? horn? What?
0: I, you know how on like the radio show they have like the sound box. <laughs> I think yeah I, okay
1: yeah. so back so back during that time frame which of course I did not I'm not old enough to personally have experienced haha ha, but I heard about no actually I did experience this you w- there was a lot of interest in how you wrote things you know how what how did you word things um, there was a lot of interest in error messaging and uh, there was a lot of interest in how you wrote instructions or explain things Uh, and then it seemed like it kind of you know was ignored for a while didn't wasn't that important and then the whole website thing came out which you guys have mentioned and then everyone you you know was interested in whatever it was you were putting on your website to describe your product or services or marketing copy Um, but then that did I think separate out from UX and so now you know the UX people didn't and and many of them don't necessarily think that that's really about them, right? They're relying on someone else is going to give them the words. yeah, uh, and they might be interested. Maybe they're interested in the instructions at the top of the form, uh, what they call the labels, or you know, the instruction in the middle of the form. Um, but even that, I think, sometimes does not get a lot of attention. And I know that Guthrie and I, Um, We do – we've, um, you know, been moving towards doing a lot of behavioral science work and applying behavioral science and behavioral economics to design. So that's kind of our – a lot of what we focus on these days. But we still do – I mean, we're in the middle of uh, a project where we're evaluating – You know, a series of screens and pages, and in that evaluation, we do and will be looking at wording because to me, it's just you know, it's part of it. You're obviously to me, it's obvious. You're talking about is this page or screen uh, usable? Is it is it going to uh, encourage people to take action? Uh, You know, do they understand what to do with it? Are they going to want to do what you're hoping they're going to do? And I don't know how you can possibly say that you know the words written on the page don't have anything to do with it. But I think you're right that a lot of people just don't think about it in as much depth as you guys definitely have um, in the book. And I'm re- I'm so excited to have found you guys because I'll be honest with you, um, we get clients who ask us things like, you know, do you guys teach a workshop on on writing? And uh, writing in UX, and and our answer is no. Um, and now I know who to send these people to, because you guys do <laughs> teach the workshop. So I, I have a, a couple questions about. Can I ask a couple questions
0: from the book? Hold on. Yeah, absolutely. No, you what? can. I mean, you can, can? But, but not until I ask. But what? Can uh, okay, can we get ahead. the uh, can, for the audience? Can we get like the thirty second elevator pitch? for the book? Yeah, just what's it what's it about? So yeah. you're you're at a, you're at you're at the uh, the New Year's party and the person saunters up. "Hey, so what do you guys what do you guys do?" And you
1: say, "We just oh, we, we just published a book." Oh, oh
0: that's amazing. What? <laughs> what's it it's a call. What, what's it about? Writing. Is it is Writing it like is a design. like a like a sort of a 18th century British little women type?
1: Yeah. <laughs> they call those costumes, you know. It's, a, it's
3: a sci-fi epic. Sci-fi um, epic. Oh, space, okay. A, a, a space opera. Right? Will, okay. You know. yeah.
1: So what would you say really?
3: Now, this um, this book is um, just basically answering um, or just putting forth the thesis that um, the process of writing is and should be part of the design process for digital experience or software. So all the same things that apply to um, digital design, like, you know, testing and and iteration and strategy and um, research um, can all and should all be be um, be applied to you know the words in the interface as well because they are just inextricable from each other. Like a, a design without words is just a big you know jumble of shapes and colors and and elements, and just a bunch of words without design is a chatbot. So um, this this book is just kind of like giving. Um, giving the reader not only some tools to um, just write responsible words in a digital experience, but then also um, just giving them the rhetoric to talk about it. Right, like if you're trying to, um, you know, justify to your boss why you need to have a UX writer or a writing team or a better writing practice, uh, this book is kind of arming you with 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 those with those words.
1: Now, did
3: I did I hit that, Michael?
1: That. Yeah, Michael, do you uh, have anything you want to
3: change? (laughs) He's
1: like, okay, sounds good. Yeah, go with that. So, um, all right. But having said that, I have to say there's more to this than maybe some people think. Because I think sometimes people think, okay, yeah, I'm going to make sure that my writing is clear. You know, I'm going to follow all the guidelines for writing simply and clearly. But you guys get into some much more nuanced stuff. So can I, Can I now, Guthrie, now can I ask my questions?
0: Yes. Thank you. I, I'll allow it.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he'll allow it. Uh, it so so. Just, Andy and Michael, Guthrie's a, a, a licensed attorney in the that was a, that state was of Illinois. Joke. And that was a legal oh, justice. Oh, nice. He'll <laughs> nice. allow it. Yeah, okay. All right. So, Objection. <laughs> now we're That's in real, a lot of trouble.
3: Sustain. Right,
1: so, I mean, I just want to get, so I, I don't even know if it's questions. I just like things I, I found in the book that I thought were especially interesting. So you have this whole section on tone and voice. And and I really love the way you you talk about, you know, tone and voice and the difference between tone and voice and and, and what to do all that. with with all that so um can you just talk for a minute about you know okay what what's tone what's voice why should i care about those things
3: sure um i think um i think a lot of times people conflate those two things they'll say tone of voice or they'll talk about voice and tone in one just talking about maybe like kind of the personality and the style that you infuse your writing with but um i think that they're super interrelated but i definitely think they're different things um you know, voices, voices, your, your personality, right? Like I'm Andy, this is the way that I talk and these are my values and I will sometimes, you know, use particular words to mean like when I'm trying to, you know, talk about certain things, but The tone of my voice changes depending on who I'm talking to. So like the way that I talk to you all here on this podcast is different than the way that I I talk to my mother, which is different than the way I talk to my college roommate, which is different than the way I talk to Michael. Um, Those are ways that I kind of like change the tone of my voice depending on the situation. um, If I need to be really, really clear about something or if I want to be really encouraging or positive or sometimes I just need a vent to be negative. So... um, I kind of switch up while kind of keeping that same personality, that same voice. Um, and so we we talk about how to like put that to use in product. So sometimes you need to really encourage somebody through a particular you know flow, or be really like really motivate them to like try a new feature or to you know finish a payment or whatever. Um, and we kind of give some some strategies to like figure out how to be really consistent and build profiles of tone um, that you can just kind of call in when you need to. Um, and then also like, you know, give you, give you ways to just make sure you have a kind of a consistent voice while you're doing it. Like, you know, especially when you have like a large team of people writing and making kind of their own individual decisions. So, um, it just kind of each chapter just kind of breaks down, um, the difference between those, those two words, which I think are kind of often confused for each other
1: yeah like you have like like all right, so let me ask you because you have one example and I, and I, another reason I think the book is so well done is you, know, you you're talking about these concepts and ideas and what they are and why they're important, and then you have lots and lots of examples, um, which really helps. So I'm looking at this one page where you've got um, uh, a bunch of different types of messages all around having someone reset their password, right? Mm -hmm. and unfortunately i'm looking at the printout and i don't have a page number on it so i can't help you with that (laughs) sorry but you have like a it says there's a you have different wordings like one is called the encouraging wording another is informational another is trustworthy Mm -hmm. another is sympathetic um and so you know the the encouraging one says you know hi andy Let's get your password reset. It's been 90 days since you last updated it. Go ahead and pick a new one that's 12 characters or more and include and includes letters and numbers and then use it to log in again, right? And yeah. then you have the informational one. I won't read them all, but the informational one says, your password is 90 days old and has expired. Create a new one and sign back in, right? So these are, and, and one can imagine, you know, the trustworthy is different, the sympathetic is different. Yeah. So those four, four, one, two, three, four, you would call the, they would, those all be different tones.
3: Yeah. Those all kind of fit within different sort of profiles of tone. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, they might be, they might be more applicable to in certain, um, situations. Um, I think that example, I kind of went to an extreme with some of them. Um, you know, yeah, you did it on purpose. That that first one I read. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You said sympathetic is, uh, you know, not the right fit. Encouraging seems a bit overboard, right? And so what you're saying is which of these you would use, and there's the trustworthy one and there's a sympathetic one, would depend on the situation and the the audience. Is that?
3: For sure. Yeah. The the, kind of the scenario, um, like, you know, is this happening in a little error message dialogue that's popping up or is this happening as just a piece of micro microcopy that sits above the interface or is this happening in a um, like a push notification um, you really have to think about the context through which a user might read this um, and then also really think about the user state of mind as well like you know are they being interrupted from um, like in a really important workflow are you just like you know popping this up and kind of shoving it in front of them or is it something where they've gone into settings and they've gone down to password and they've gone you know into change the password where they really you really know that they're here to do this um i think that makes a big difference in you know in kind of like what tone you you choose as well so
1: are, are you saying that it, let's say that i work for you know a large company i mean we've guthrie and i have done work you know in fact we had a project a couple of years ago in which we were reviewing, uh, now I would say we were reviewing tone, probably tone and voice, although back when we were doing the work I didn't know to use that terminology. But we were reviewing uh, for this large insurance company, right? The, the tone and the voice they were using for all kinds of copy and messaging uh, and making suggestions to them about about changes based on on their audience and their goals and what they were trying to get across, in in in, in as their uh, brand values really. And um, so, in a situation like that, where you have multiple people are going to be writing multiple s- things, right? So, tell me about how you would suggest a, an organ a large organization. You know, are there things they can do um, to besides getting, you know, they can get everyone trained in your workshop, which would be a great idea. But should they have, uh, you know, standards? Should they have a palette that they're working from that where they can have conversations like, okay, you know, for this, let's use an informational tone. And then everybody kind of, you know, knows what that means or can look up what that means. Like how, how would you use this as a strategy in, in a large company when you're dealing with multiple authors?
2: Well, I think there are a lot of different approaches you can use, and I always encourage people to, to find what works for their situation. Um, so for example, one big trend that a lot of companies are using right now is to have a design system, and we talk a bit about these in the book. Mm-hmm. And a design system was initially meant to be like a, a pattern library of code uh, that you could use to, you know, put different design elements out there within a web app or something. And you would just have this centralized repository where you could have consistent looking and feeling uh, p- components to pull from. But, um, a lot of companies are now using those design systems as a way to get everyone on the same page in terms of what the product's voice should be and how tone should change in different situations. So one one example we use in the book, and it's a great one, is uh, Shopify's Polaris design system. And you can find that publicly on the web. They actually have it um, so the public can see. And they have a lot of Information in there for people who are doing writing and um, their experience. So that's that's one you know way that they've done it. But there are a lot of different ways you can do it too. You know, you could if people are heavily relying on the style guide, um, you know, whether it's like an internal style guide um, that that writers have, that that could be a good way to like make um, make some adjustments there or um, add some information to it. Um some teams are just working off of like their own standards. Maybe it's a, you're looking at an internal wiki or something. So mm-hmm. I always encourage people to be flexible. There's no one right answer, but having the conversation and writing it down somewhere is really important. That's the key step.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So um can I ask a question? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um so this is this is great and all. Uh, but there are a lot of there's in, in the, I think one of the reasons that people have maybe the, the, not the best opinion of a lot of companies is because their relationship with them is not good. Because a lot of the tone of things is not good. And it feels, it doesn't feel like the company cares about the person at all. And I have in front of me here a real letter. <laughs> <laughs> that was sent to to a I real heard person. That paper. Okay?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um give me uh give me the can can I get a can I get like a random name cuz I don't want to use the the, the Jim name. Jim. <laughs> uh uh can I get get a last name. Uh
1: Even Langford. Like... Jim Langford.
0: Okay, I apologize to nice. Jim Jim Langford if Jim is is actually it actually there probably exists. is a Jim Langford, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, I have the unfortunate time of telling you that Jim has passed away. Mm. Okay. Okay. And uh, this is about this is about ten days or so, eh, maybe maybe two weeks after Jim has passed. To the estate of. Jim Langford in All Capital Letters. Medicare told us about the death of Jim Langfurt in All Capital Letters. Please accept our condolences. Jim Langfurt's All Capital Letters coverage in this uh, prescription plan has ended as of twelve one uh t- two thousand we'll just say nineteen. If, a, if planned pr- premiums were paid for any month after December of that month, we will issue a refund to the estate within 30 days of this letter. If the Medicare Part D premium was being deducted from Jim Langford's Social Security benefit, please allow up to three months for us to process a refund. If the estate has not received a refund from Social Security within three months of this letter, a representative of the state should contact us at this phone number. Um, if this information is wrong, please contact your social security office. There's a lot of phone numbers with uh, times and stuff. Um, thank you, comma, and then the name of the company. So what are your, what are your thoughts about? I'd like to hear your thoughts about this letter. (laughs)
3: Um, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's very... I mean, it's very business like the tone, you know, the tone of it isn't it doesn't seem like there was a lot of, you know, research done before, um, you know, before writing and sending that out. Like, I think I think some of it just feels super corporate because clearly it's a form letter, you know, like yeah. the name, the name is in all caps. Um, <laughs> there hasn't been a lot of good sort of um, like thought about, you know, the formatting as well as the content. So um, I it, it's hard like it's hard to speak to, you know, things like form letters that are sent out um, because, you know, that that's all something that just kind of happens at once. Right. Like I feel like interactive experiences, um, you can take a little bit more care to, you know, make sure, you know, mm. it's a little bit more situational, it's a little bit more nonlinear. Um, and presumably, hopefully somebody is thinking about, you know, the the pain or the anguish that somebody is feeling, um, you know, by the death of somebody they may be, you know, close to. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to speak a little bit to that only that it sounds a little disingenuous and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's ways that somebody can, you know, try to capture, capture a little bit more conversational of a tone. Um, but while still, you know, getting the information you're trying to get across out there. Right. So, yeah,
0: it's, it's really, it it is amazing. Well, I only bring it up because I have kept we uh, we talk about micro moments. Uh, sometimes, yeah, which is right. There's there's the macro design of the layout and all that stuff, which is important. But you know, when you have a relationship with a customer or you know whoever it is, um, it is those small little moments that sort of define the relationship. Mm-hmm. And you know, to you know to to start with. Medicare told us about the death of this person in all capital letters please accept our condolences it yeah. is, is, right like not only do I not believe that you <laughs> that you are sad about this in any way shape or form <laughs> like it really like you know it you know I, I've talked to the person who received this letter and it was not a pleasant experience because it because yeah. it feels really disingenuous it would have been a lot better. Had they not tried to pretend to care, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, it's yeah. almost like an mm-hmm. uncanny valley. And yeah. clearly, you know, you know, I'm not saying that any thought was really put into this, but um, I think these things happen a lot.
2: Yeah, and honestly, I hope that um, one of the things that um, that we want to push forward to other people working in in the field, especially with digital experiences, is that you have to be aware that not every moment in someone's life is going to be really happy and cheerful. And in digital experiences, sometimes those those things can slip in um, unintentionally. So like one example that uh, came up recently, I was working with an insurance company on a chat bot and someone suggested that we end every interaction with um, have a great day. Which, uh, if you're working with an insurance company, you could have a number of reasons that someone is chatting with you. You could have someone was in a car accident. Someone um, lost their home. You know, maybe someone lost a loved one. Even, you know, so those moments that seem. Well, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of, yeah, exactly. So that that was a relevant use case, but the thing is. Um, these things can seem pretty innocuous in the digital space. The people who wrote this letter had the advantage even of knowing the situation they were writing for, and it still came off poorly, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in digital experiences, sometimes the people writing the messages don't even take the time to look at all the different scenarios someone could be going through and write in a way that accommodates those.
1: Yeah, I think that's really... It's really important to to realize that sometimes you think you're being friendly and nice and optimistic and upbeat but you know that that is not always a great way to relate to someone if they're in a you know Guthrie reminds me a little bit of you know the you know framing and regulatory fit i mean if that's not the space they're in then that message is really the tone of that message is really gonna be jarring
0: yeah yeah um, the other uh, it's it's also uh, the the other example that I think I like to use we haven't put this we should we need to put it in our slide deck too um, I mean uh, is Facebook who I, I noticed you said he used to work for um, I, there it I don't know how I could totally see. If you're just writing the copy right you don't know the context in which it's going to be displayed and so it must be it must be a really hard problem to solve so let me give you an example Um, I know someone uh, whose mother had passed but they never marked on Facebook that she had passed it's just you know they didn't touch her Facebook profile so on her birthday Facebook sent them a message being like hey celebrate your friendship with so-and-so because all Facebook knows is that you guys are Facebook friends and then has like a bunch of photos of them while like you know she was sick and had cancer and all that stuff and so obviously you know it's like a horrible experience and the copy is like hey remember all the fun times you had with you know (laughs) but like the person who wrote that could have no idea and I don't it must it must be a really difficult problem to solve because you know Facebook doesn't know, it's just running, it's just plugging and playing sort of the, the code. So um when it comes to those digital experiences, I don't know. Did do you have any advice on on and how to know what tone to pick or Yeah, that's it's a tough problem.
3: Have you all read um, Design for Real Life by Sarah Rockdapter and Eric Meyer? No. It's a really, really good book. Um, It is. It's written like it. It came out in a book apart, uh, one of the part of their series. And um, there's a story that Eric Meyer tells in there. He's a web developer, and a really, just really great writer. And when his daughter was six years old, she died because she had, um, I I I think, a type of cancer. And that exact same thing happened to him. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, he that year he posted a lot of updates about his daughter and talked a lot about her condition to his friends on Facebook and. Um, she, uh, yeah, so Facebook, Facebook as a, as a system, as an algorithm knew that, you know, she was, she was featured in a lot of his, you know, a lot of his posting, um, that like, you know, that year. And so at the end of the year, it showed that like, Hey, look back at all the, all the happy times you had with your, with what's her name, with your daughter. And big cover photo was just a picture of her. And that just like, you know, hit him, hit him yeah. right in the gut. Yeah. So. Um, you know, the a, a lot of, a lot of the book, um, like a big thesis of that book is, is essentially just like design, design for the stress cases. Like, first mm. of all, you know, your, your six-year-old daughter dying is not a very common occurrence. Um, so, you know, when it lands on the plate of, um, you know, like somebody running QE or, or, or somebody who's like trying to, to think about how to, you know, how robust to build the system, that might be like, oh, that's an edge case. Let's not worry about that. Mm. And, Uh, One of the things that this book has said is like, you know, it's not, you know, an edge case implies that there is an outer limit to um, to what you care about in a user's life. So think of it more like a stress case. And you know what, in fact, take extra care to design for the stress cases because, you know, those are those are going to be the situations that need your your high touch um, the most. And so. I think that's a perfect example of of that in, in action, right? Like, you know, Facebook as an as an algorithm as a system might not know that, you know, somebody somebody you're connected to has died or is still alive, um, but when but in in doing so, like, don't assume you know that they're still alive. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a really good lesson to kind of be had there, especially especially for a system that is operating at that scale. You know, two point mm-hmm. 2. two billion users of Facebook. That's right, that's right. quite a lot. So. Yeah, anything to add to that, Michael?
2: Yeah, I think um, they're asking questions is a really good tactic. You know, you ask, like, how can people do this um, effectively? How can they design um, for good situations uh, or good experiences in these situations? And I think asking questions is really important and, and shining a light on the user journey and all the things that someone could be going through. Because I think a lot of times people just want to think about the the happier moments. They want to think about that happy path, as we call it. So um, shining a light on those things is really important, and people start to recognize the responsibility um, across the team that everyone has um, in those moments.
1: Yeah. So, okay, let me, uh, uh, I'm going to ask another question, totally different question. Well, kind of different. I'd like to, I have a couple of questions that really kind of dig into maybe the UX aspects of of words. Um, I love the example. You have an example in your book uh, about uh, a chatbot and how the wording of um, the uh, initial chat, you know, how the chatbot starts might. Confuse the user about, you know, there, there's a mismatch between. I'll just give an example. So, this is a support chatbot. And in your example, the uh, chatbot says, Hi, I'm a chatbot. How can I help you? And the person writes in, Hi, right? Because you said hi. And the person wrote back, Hi. And then the chatbot writes back, Sorry, I didn't catch that. What do you need help with? And, you, and your point here is that the chat bot was expecting the user to describe their issue but it was so conversational when it started that the, the human, the user uh, thought you know okay we're starting the conversation And I know you know whether it's a chat bot or a chat with a human, I know in my experience sometimes depending on my mood, when the person says hi, how can I help you?" I write back with hi. You know, I mean, it's like you're having a conversation. You say hello, and then they say hello, you say hello, and then you get into what the issue is. And in this case, you know, because it's a chatbot, it just automatically didn't understand hi as an issue, right? And then was essentially saying right from the beginning, okay, I don't understand what you're saying, right? (laughs) Um, And I, I just thought that was such a great, Example of you know just watching out for your wording because if you start with hi, I'm a chatbot. It's a very high probability the person's going to say hi.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think um, that was in a section where um, we were talking about metaphor, and I think a, a thread throughout the book that we really want to drive home is that um, there there are no simple answers to some of these design problems where it can feel like, um, oh, if I just know the the best practice and the right way to do it, um, we'll be good. And I think that's kind of how writing has been treated for a long time. But what we try to illustrate are some situations where, um, you know, things are uh, hard to deal with. So, you know, we talked in that section about metaphor <clears throat> and how metaphor is
3: really popular. And I think- um,
1: Didn't one, of, one examples- of you say you studied with Lakoff?
3: Um, one of our um, interviewees, so John John Sato, um, who well, he's now a designer at Dropbox, but he was a a product writer there. He's he studied under Lakoff.
1: Yeah, Lakoff's stuff. Uh, have you read any of his material?
3: A bit, yeah.
1: Yeah, he's uh, that's really interesting stuff on so good. on metaphor.
2: Yeah. 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 So in the case you're mentioning, the metaphor of the chatbot and of the conversation was so powerful that it, the user did something that, that the designers didn't want. <laughs> you know. Um, and so that's the thing. It's, it's just you have to be really careful about how you use all these tools in your toolkit. It can seem like a really good idea to get really conversational with the chatbot, but a different greeting that doesn't um, cause the user to respond with hello might have been uh, much more effective in that scenario.
1: So do you think are people... How much do you think people are testing either before implementation or even after implementation, you know, testing things like this and the wording and the responses. And then, you know, if they didn't catch it beforehand, which we hope hope that they would, that they're at least looking at the data uh, or actively testing so they can adjust as they go along. Do you think wording is getting tested very much?
2: Yeah, I've done a lot of work in the conversation design space, and I think that space does a lot of analysis of transcripts and things like that. Where, um, in a, in a situation like that, they would catch it pretty quickly. Um, I think that, however, like that usually happens in my experience. It happens like when things are uh, pushed out in development or in production, things like that. So. Uh, I think we're seeing more and more people start to test the language in particular before they get there, which is a really positive trend. It's really important. Um, but that, that is that I feel like that's not, um, a really big part of a lot of the practice of a lot of the people we talk with, um, a lot of the companies we've worked with. Um, so that I hope that happens more and more because every time I've done it, it's been really beneficial. Yeah. I don't know, Andy, what's your experience been?
3: Um, I've actually never worked really on a chatbot project, so I I don't have a lot of experience with that. Um, as far as interface language goes, I know that you know some some companies have a you know a pretty big um, culture of testing, um, and some don't. Um, yeah. I have I definitely like whenever we, we would when I worked at Facebook, we would write something like, you know, pretty pretty. Um, what am I trying to say, like high-touch or important, we would definitely spend some time and test it. Um, I think the, I think something I wrote, like we tested at some point like you know, 11 different variants of it, which was maybe a little <laughs> overboard. <laughs> but still, you got a lot of really good insight from something like that. So, um, you know, Adobe, um, our products are kind of all over the board. We have, um, you know, different products of different ages built on different systems. So some, some have a really good kind of like, you know, Culture of of testing messages and testing content, um, and some products don't. But it's it's definitely whenever whenever I can get away with it, I fully embrace it because you'll get really good insights from that.
1: Yeah, we've seen a trend. Um, Guthrie and I, or I don't know if it just happens to be with I don't know why why we're seeing this, but with some of our projects recently, our clients think that if you are testing with um, Other design colleagues or employees at the company, that that's that counts as testing. Like testing with the actual target audience or testing with actual users or customers is not really necessary. (laughs) We've been kind of like, um, yeah, kind of appalled. I mean, you know, it's like what you think, what? Yeah, because we always ask about testing, and then they go, oh yeah, 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 we tested this. We we um we took three <laughs> three people from the such and such department and and we did user testing with them. And yeah. I'm
3: like. Ah. I mean, depending, I mean, it's certainly not ideal or really what you want to be, you know, who you want to be testing with. I I, st- I still think is better than nothing uh, because you can still reveal some things that are just like you know straight up not usable that way. But for sure, if you have any capacity to talk to people outside of your little yeah. world. Like you should totally do that. All
1: right, here's an here's another one I have for you. Another kind of detail thing. You you talk. There's a place in the book where you're talking about. Um, and I hope I'm not annoying you with pulling out things from the book.
3: No, it's great.
1: <laughs> I know sometimes I've had people say, on page two hundred and nineteen, <laughs> you say this. And I'm like, really? I gotta go get a book. Um, uh, so you talk about just things like, I mean, this seems so small, but it's I, I to me, yeah, I think it's important. So you've got, you know, somewhere in your instructions or whatever, you tell people to click on this or tap this or press this, or and you you say, well, yeah, but you know, it might be a touch interface, and so they're not, you know, clicking there with their mouse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so trying to use uh, device agnostic is what you, the phrase you use, device agnostic words like choose, select and view.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big part of um, I think you probably saw that in the um, accessibility and inclusivity chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, yeah, that's that's totally the case. Like if you don't have a very personalized interface, um, you know, if you have maybe like both a, a mobile and a desktop um, kind of layout um, Device-agnostic language is is the best way to go because if you you know if you're tapping and you see something that says click, like it can be, it can be a little jarring. Um, but I think what it's really good for are people who are using screen readers, right? Like people who yeah. maybe have visual impairments or reasons why they can't, you know, like use the interface in a traditional way. So um, I, I think a big a big one that just kind of Blew my mind wide open when I first encountered it was, you know, use use chronological language, not um, temporal language. Like, don't say like, oh, hey, click that blue box to the left, um, because somebody using screen reader just like has no concept of that being to the left. So, if it's not like you know above or below or to the left or to the right or the blue box or whatever, um, instead, you know, instead saying you know next do this and next do this and after like finally do that. Um, that's that's a little bit. A little bit more accessible and a little bit easier to um, to parse for for everybody.
1: Yeah. 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 And uh, all right. And then another thing I wanted to bring up is your section on error messages, which have I mean the whole idea of how to handle error messages is, has been a favorite topic of mine for a very long time. But I thought you um, I've never seen it described quite this way, and I really like the way you do it. you you've done it here. Because you talk about um, uh, three principles for using words to design error states. Uh, one is, um, of course, you know, avoid. Right. But I, you you say avoid, explain, resolve, and I love those. I love those three words to describe it. And I think the way I've been, I've been describing it over the years is not as succinct as this. So, avoid. Uh, Find ways to help your user without showing them an error. So if you can avoid an error message needing to be there at all, that's the way to go. Um, And if you can't, uh, then explain, tell your users what's going on and what went wrong. And then resolve, provide a solution to the problem that the user is facing. But I just think those three words, avoid, explain, resolve, is so clear. And I really appreciated your your. Writing that way and choosing those words, because, to me, that there's an example of, you know, principles that I've been talking about for a long time, and yet I never came up with those three succinct words to explain it.
2: Yeah, and I don't know. Certainly, those those ideas aren't completely original. You know, like you may yeah. notice uh, they're similar to what uh, Nielsen wrote about. You know, in terms of air prevention, but I think. Um, what what's helped me with my teams is just reframing the whole idea of an error as um, something that is uh, an opportunity to help users accomplish a task, rather than a moment where we have to like recover from the failure of the system. Um, so that's why avoiding them is so important because if you can find a way through design to actually you know, keep that error from ever occurring in the first place, that's the best kind of error message, one that doesn't exist at all. And so um, that's why we want writers to start thinking more like designers, because I think early in my career, I would get a request to write an error message and I would just write it. And now in my career, if I have to do something like that, I will do a lot more exploration and ask a lot more questions and work with my team to try to see if we can find other ways to address the
3: problem. Now, Michael can be a huge pain in the butt.
2: <laughs> <and, you
3: know, laughs> asked to do a simple task
2: exactly <laughs> yeah. but i think everyone should be you know like that's just part of being uh effective in this field you know like you should be able to ask those questions and that's really important that you feel the confidence like that even though you're the writer and you've been asked to write the sarah message it's okay to ask why and it's okay to ask are there other ways we can help people accomplish this task absolutely
1: you know i i have a uh I haven't done this in a while, Guthrie. I might have to resurrect it. We've, we've, uh, uh, for a while, and I do have a, an entire collection of error messages. And um, it, when you put them in a presentation in the right place in the right order, and you have a good delivery, it, you can get a big laugh out of, uh, out of them because oh, some yeah. of them, you know, are so, so absurd. But yeah, I do. I collect error messages. So if you. Uh, anyone listening (laughs) if you have some good ones you know send me screenshots i love love to get those
3: i have a pretty good collection of specifically just adobe error messages oh really there's (laughs) there's some pretty good ones in that (laughs) in that in that list good (laughs) so
1: what would you say is the is there anything in your book uh or in your workshops that you think i don't know is like controversial or the thing people really, really have a hard time with. Like they, they just, you know, say, no, 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 I, I don't tell me that I don't want to do that or that's going to be too hard or.
3: Do you want to talk about critique, Michael?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, um, that's interesting. I wasn't thinking of critique. Um, I, I think I was thinking of the one um, kind of the approach to, uh, getting involved in teams um, and contributing to them. Mm,
3: yeah. um, so
2: that that's the one I'm thinking of right away. And so I think like there's kind of an attitude in the world of design that like, if I have a design job, like say I'm a UX writer, I'm a UX designer, um, product designer, whatever the the title is, people should listen to me because I'm the designer, and people should do what I say. And if people um you know push back at all then you know that that's a bad thing because i'm the designer and i know what to do and i haven't really found that to be the case at all in my career and i I don't think that's an effective way to work with teams so we write about how the best way to make um to make change happen on a team is to come alongside them and try to meet their goals and um really be um help them achieve what they want to achieve and and do some things for them first uh, before you really try to um, change the world right so i think like you can read books like ours and feel like um, you should apply everything right away and i don't think that's realistic i think people who have that mentality get burned out pretty quick because um, it can be just exhausting i think you have to start earning trust and um, coming alongside people and helping them solve some problems and and get some success and then you'll be able to um, help start change the way they're working.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I uh, and w- so what was the critique idea that?
3: Oh, that oh. was, um, there's a really good section of the book just about like how, you know, when you get a group of of writers um sometimes of writers and designers together um there's a way that you can just kind of like show your work and get feedback and give feedback in a very um you know in a a productive way not in a um a critical way and we really talk about like the difference between like critique and criticism Mm. so i was I, i was thinking from from your prompt um you know sometimes making yourself vulnerable especially at work to kind of put your work out there and get other eyes on it can be really hard so um Mm, there's a chapter that just gives there's a chapter that gives a really good kind of like framework and approach to doing that like you know allowing allowing the person being critiqued to kind of like scope the type of feedback that they're looking for uh, is one way Mm -hmm. um and then another another one is you know kind of make sure that you're setting your your feedback in um, you know, you're kind of couching it in observations and facts instead of saying like, "I don't like this," and then not mm-hmm. really providing any rationale, which happens surprisingly often. Um, so yeah, I think um, that's kind of what I was I was thinking of. But I, I mean, honestly, that's that ties directly into what Michael was talking about, like you know, yeah, being, team, being part of a team for sure.
1: It is related, and I think you know, when I've done a lot of mentoring of of UX people and. I think what also ties into this is the idea that, well, a couple of things. One is that if you if you take the point of view that um, being successful in this work, whether it's you know helping to influence the the writing so that it's the writing is clearer and better for the target audience. Um, or whether it has to do with, you know, some changes in the, the something in the UX design to make the product better. If you take the point of view of, um, you know, ask yourself, is there anything about this product that is at all improved or more usable for the people who are going to use it? Anything, any small thing that is better because I was part of the team. And, and I was able to, you know, have some influence. If there's anything, then that's, then you were successful. I think sometimes design people, whether it's visual design or UX design or writing design, have, you know, they're so passionate about what they do that, but they feel if you, if the team doesn't do everything they said or almost everything, then they weren't successful. And it's like no, you know, you you are part of a team. You there's all kinds of things going on and all kinds of people, and you don't get to make all the decisions, and you probably wouldn't want that anyway. So any you know, any influence you had means you were successful. And I think if you if you take that point of view, a couple of things happen. One is, I think it maybe frees you up to make more suggestions because it's not like everyone is is a critical one I think it it uh, it um, helps prevent you from burning out I think a lot of reasons that people burn out from design is because they feel that I'm you know I'm not it's not working I'm not successful they're not listening to me and so if you just kind of ease up on on that and see your role as, um, I think one of you mentioned it earlier as um, you know I'm going to point things out that's my job <laughs> you know and uh, I'll, I'll make suggestions and i help you out here and you know that's that's what I do um, I, I but you know it's, you don't you don't have to do everything I'm just going to point it out uh, I think that that's that can be really helpful for everybody. And then I think the other thing, yeah, that you just mentioned is really important. I think that that you people become more able to take uh, to listen to a critique if they are also better able to communicate when they are critiquing. and I think doing it as not um, you know, my opinion is, or I don't like this, or I don't think you should have done that. But if you, I I always like to teach people, one of the things we teach is we teach the science behind all of this. So, you know, research shows that, um, or as you were talking about with accessibility, right? Uh, The screen reader is going to read it this way. So therefore it might be better for us to do this. And to so that when you're giving the idea, it's doesn't it's not your personal opinion. It's based on, you know, other factors. And I think if you if you practice doing that, not only do you become more influential, but then I think it it means you become more open to hearing critiques from other people too.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Hey guys, I have. i've I've so enjoyed the book on uh, i'm i I was just reading the advanced copy, so now I'm gonna get uh, the the real copy. Um, and I'm just so appreciative of of your writing it. Uh, and I can imagine that writing a book about writing is even more daunting than <laughs> writing a book about something <laughs> else
3: it definitely it definitely got meta. like we <laughs> I'm really. One really interesting challenge we had was, you know, we're writing a book that's in part about about voice and about, like, finding a singular, consistent voice yeah. when you have a team of writers. And sure enough, we had a two, two people with distinct voices <laughs> trying to write a book about it. So yeah. we definitely made sure to um, – we, we actually went through some of the voice alignment exercises we list in the book specifically for the book. Yeah. yeah. And so that was – That was definitely a fun challenge. And when we put this through our editor at at Rosenfeld Media, you know, one of the things we had for her was one of the things we asked was, like, hey, like, we really don't want you to be able to tell who wrote what chapter. Ah. So we. She she was kind of a therapist for us. (laughs) For for sure. Marta
2: Justek. She's a saint.
3: Yeah.
1: All right. All right. So, uh, everyone listening, um, the book is called Writing is Design. Correct? Mm. I have it right. uh, Writing just, is Designing, yeah. Oh, see, I had it wrong. Writing is Designing just came out from Rosenfeld Media. Uh, available uh, everywhere one usually gets their books, I assume.
3: Yeah. You can
1: you buy it on Amazon and so on.
3: You can get it on Amazon, but, of course, you know, you're know, you supporting independent publishers if you buy you it from the Rosenfeld Media the website. Rosenfeld,
1: so. Right, so we'll yeah. put a link to the Rosenfeld uh, up at, uh, at the uh, when we post the, the podcast episode and this is uh by michael metz and andy wealthy well yes you got it um and if anyone wants to get hold of you guys or if for instance they might be interested in a workshop or something what's the best way to reach you
2: we have a website writingisdesigning.com Okay. And you'll be able to find information on the book. Sign up for our newsletter there. And we have, you know, links to both of uh you know, where you can find us on the internet as well for both of us.
1: Great. I'll include that too in the
3: uh, You can get to my TikTok page, page there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay
2: I don't,
3: we'll I don't sure have a TikTok.
1: <laughs> All right. Thanks guys
0: for coming on. Yeah.
2: Thank you both. Thanks
0: That's
2: for having us. Bye. Bye. Bye.